We'll hear argument first this term in case 08-680, Maryland versus Schatzer. General Gansler. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. This case is here from the Maryland Court of Appeals. That, in that case, the Court of Appeals suppressed a statement that was given by a respondent following what the trial court found to be a valid waiver of his Miranda rights and following a free and voluntary uh, confession. The reason why the Court did so was because two years and seven months prior to that, uh, the defendant was in a different custodial interrogation and at that time invoked his right to counsel. We ask that this Court reverse the Maryland Court of Appeals. It is our position that a break in custody from custodial interrogation should be the bright line that this Court adopts uh, in order to end the irrebuttable presumption that this Court created in the Edwards case. Without regard to the time break in custody uh, of one day, do you think that should be enough? Your Honor, we do think one day should be enough as long as it's not in the pretrial detention uh, category. Obviously, the three cases that have come uh, before this Court, Edwards, Minnick, and Roberson, all well, two of them were three days and one of them was one day, but those defendants were in the pretrial detention status. So if, in fact, a defendant is brought in, questioned, and then released back to his or her daily routine, uh, and away from the isolation of a custodial interrogation, we feel that that should be the bright line for a break in custody. So what if it's repeatedly done? You know, you've, you bring him in, give him his Miranda rights, he says, I don't want to talk, you let him go. You bring him in, give him his Miranda rights, said, I don't want to talk. You know, just sort of catch and release until he finally breaks down and says, all right, I'll talk. Well, give, there, there is a parade of horribles of catch and release, and Your Honor just went through one of them, um, and there are obviously a number of hypotheticals that one could posit. We would suggest that the break of custody uh, would be the end of the Edwards irrebuttable pr- presumption. However, there are still three uh, responses to that. The first would be the defendant could still say that his or her uh, Miranda rights were not given voluntarily and, and uh Willfully. Secondly, the, the due process jurisprudence that this Court had prior to Miranda still is in, in uh, existence, and therefore the defendant could argue that that confession was given in an overborne way, that his will was overborne. But finally, and I think most relevantly, because that, this is sort of the, the one other side in this case, is that there has been, since 1982, eight federal circuits and over 20 states have had the break of custody rule in effect. In fact, this Court, uh, in the McNeil case, and, albeit in dicta and parenthetically, uh, assumed a break in custody uh, as the rule. There has been not one published opinion that at least we could find that has this, uh, that has that scenario and found that the Is case the rationale for the break in custody that there is a likelihood of non-coercion? Is, is that the reason that you offer for the rule? Uh, Your Honor, it, it goes to, yes, it go, this Court is saying, uh, most recently again in Montejo, that the reason for Edwards is that we want to prevent badgering. All right, but this person was in custody in the sense he was in prison, and the brief said, oh, well, he's released to the general population. But the possibilities for coercion uh, or, or pressure are very substantial in the prison. The warden comes in and says, oh, your cell doesn't have a window. Uh, I mean, there, there, there's countless ways in, in which a, a prisoner in the general prison population uh, will consider that he is that there's been no break in custody. I, I, I think that's a very difficult rule that you're proposing. Well, the courts have, have, have the, the lower courts have shown that there is a difference between police interrogational custody and correctional custody. What, what we're suggesting is once the person, in, in our case, for example, in the second uh, 
interview. The defendant was in a, what's called a, what was called a maintenance room in the record with a you know, metal table and the two chairs. It was clearly an interrogation context. When that person is released from that, some, some people are habitual criminals and they're put back into the general population. They are, you know, amongst uh, — that's where they live for that t- time period. Other people go home. But the break in custody for Edwards' purposes ought to end at the end of the interrogation. Now, th- could there be an interrogational situation while the person's in prison? Absolutely. You can envision uh, a, a correctional officer coming to the cafeteria when there's a, the public is there, the public being other inmates, and that would not be deemed to be a, a corre- in the interrogation atmosphere. If, however, they cleared the, the cafeteria and, and had officers standing by the doors, blocking the doors and saying no one's allowed to come in here, that could then become inter- interrogation uh, custody. And this Court and other Court, the, the Courts all the time have to de- decide in the Edwards context whether or not the defendant was in custody when this statement was given. Whether but if the, if the defendant goes home, he can contact a lawyer. In prison, he can't do that. So if the whole idea is to protect his right to counsel, then it makes a big difference whether he's at home or in prison. Your Honor, well, first of all, the defendant, while they're in prison, can contact a lawyer in some circumstances. For example, during the two years and seven months between these two interrogations, he could have written, he could have called. But, but let, let's say that that was unavailable to, to that particular defendant. It's our position that what Edwards does, Miranda Edwards, Robertson, Minnick, it provides the opportunity um, to consult counsel, but the, the — what we're talking about here is the, the custodial interrogation situation. In other words, the police don't have to get somebody a lawyer. Whether or not somebody has the opportunity to consult a lawyer or not, as long as they're provided with their Miranda rights, the Miranda rights themselves are the protection that the defendant has. We know, for example, know in this exactly case — exactly what the Miranda warning in this case was? The Miranda warning in this case, uh, the, the judge, the trial judge found was exactly comported with the Miranda warning. But, but what did it tell the uh, — person in prison he could do about a lawyer? That he had the right to a, a lawyer and... And did it tell him how he'd get a lawyer? It, it didn't... It what, what is, if you're in prison, they give you the Miranda warnings. What, what would that tell the average prisoner with respect to access to a lawyer? It would tell them they have a right to counsel, and uh, if they couldn't get one, one would be provided to them. And would they have provided a, a lawyer to him right away if they'd asked, he'd asked for it? Well, had he asked for one... Uh, which he did the first time, what they would what they oh, did when, there. when he's in prison, I mean. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's unclear from the record whether they would have or not. That would be conjecture. But what they do do, what the bright line of Edwards says is they have to stop asking questions. No, I understand that. Right. I'm just wondering, if he thinks, well, I'd like a right lawyer, what can he do? He could, uh, during those two years and seven months in this case, he could have uh, tried to get a lawyer through um, either his own lawyer in the case. Right on the spot. When he's in the room there and they give him the Miranda warning, he says that sounds like a good idea. What, what would happen? He would not be given a lawyer by the police at that time. There's not a lawyer sort of waiting outside. So the Miranda warning is a little misleading, isn't it, well, in that context? I would argue that it's not because that he's, he's given the right — he said if you — want a lawyer before talking to us, that's fine. You have to invoke your right to counsel. He invokes his right to counsel. They stop talking to him. What he and then do they does, also say it will be provided to you? Yes, but he can — there's a number and of — And it's not going to be provided to him. Oh, well, it would be, Your Honor. If, if, for example, the lawyer in his underlying case uh, came, he could say, look, I need a lawyer. They're asking me questions about it, this other case. Can you represent me on that case? 
He said, I don't want to talk to you without a lawyer, correct? Yeah, in 2003, yeah. And the State doesn't provide him with a lawyer, correct? That's correct. All right. So what gives him an understanding that one will be provided the next time he's questioned? Well, he — what, what he does understand for the first time is question, and, and he understood the rights because he himself invoked that right to counsel. So he knew that he could say, I want a lawyer, and he did. Um, what, and, and what he understands is the police will stop questioning him at that point. There is no, as far as I can tell from the, the, the jurisprudence in this Court's holdings, there is no obligation for the police to actually go out, nor would I suggest you'd want to have that rule, to go out and actually ascertain, get a no, lawyer. No, because we tell the police they have to stop. Right. So presumably they shouldn't re-engage until a lawyer is present, correct? That's what Edwards tells them not to do. Well, Edwards tells them to stop questioning. Minnick says that if they have the opportunity to consult a lawyer, they still can't start without the lawyer being there. Um, but that's a different analysis than, than this, because had they asked him on the second time after they read his rights and he said, I want a lawyer, they couldn't keep going until there was a lawyer present. He, he chose during, the, during that time, two years and seven months, where he had a mental reset well, that he, he didn't th- need. This isn't a different part of your argument. This is not the custody or break in custody. This is the time and the fact that such a prolonged period of time um, has minimized any coercive effect, Correct. Uh, no, Your Honor. We would still argue that the break — well, in this case, there obviously both exist, and you could — the Court could fashion a, a bright-line rule. This Court has shown a, an interest in bright-line rules in this area, and this Court could adopt a bright-line rule of a particular time period. We're arguing the better bright-line rule would be a break in custody. Obviously, break in custody Catch plus and release, custody. then, no longer — catch and release is unimportant to you. There's no meaning to Edwards in that situation, because every prisoner — um, because he is a captive, is questioned in a place and then told to go back to his room. His room happens to be a locked cell. So he doesn't have the freedom to leave, and he doesn't have the freedom necessarily to make calls to discuss his choice with anyone. Well, in this case — It's a very different situation than someone who's free to go home. I'm not sure uh, — well, the, the question sort of posits two different uh, scenarios. One scenario is when the defendant is arrested — they're questioned, and then they're, they're put into a cell. That's a different scenario. That would be a pretrial detention analysis, which in Minnick, Roberson, and, and Edwards extended up to three days, which is what we would argue is sort of the end of the timeline, right, as exists today. The different scenario, which is in this case, is, yes, he, he's, lo- he's locked up in the general population. He comes in for the interrogation. He's then released back to his daily routine. And at that point, our view is the irrebuttable presumption of Edwards ends. Um, and, and, you know, because he's not in custody. He is not. When in, he's in jail, that when he can't leave, can't necessarily use a phone, um, and can't confer with anyone, he's no longer in custody. He's in custody in the sense that he is not free to leave the jail. But as in the Miranda cases, he is. He can still be questioned. He's, he's not in correctional custody, and he's certainly not under interrogation. You, you mean he's not? I assume you mean he's not free to leave the prison. Right. As I understand the terms, yes. perhaps it's inaccurate. Jail is where you are when they're still questioning you, figuring out what's going to happen to you. Your argument is when he's, re- he's sent to prison, uh, he's no longer in custody for Edwards' purposes. That's exactly right. If I so can't get an he was free to leave the interrogation room? I'm sorry, Your Honor. Was he free to leave the interrogation room? No. And we are not we, — we accept that he was in police interrogational status both in 2003 and in 2006 when — when he was read as Miranda rights. I, I have to say that the break in custody, I think, has many more problems than time, but you don't seem to place much 
emphasis on time. True, we have to reach out and find some arbitrary well, num number. Uh, but after all, Edwards is an arbitrary rule. The reason why I, I, I think breaking custody uh, is not as problematic, and this goes to the uh, Justice's earlier question as well, um, is because literally the year after Edwards, 1982, was the first of the eight federal circuits that found the breaking custody rule. And there is no — they've been able to work with What's this. In those smallest — In those cases, was there a considerable interval? Not a I mean, it was just the break in custody a week? Yes, yes, Your enough? Honor. Yes, Your Honor. In, in, obviously, in different cases, there are different lengths of time. But if, in Justice Kennedy's question, if we were going to adopt a time limit, I would, we would suggest, like, for example, a seven-day time limit. You, the, the Court suggests that's arbitrary. I, the reason why I would pick seven days is right now the rule is three days. And you cannot envision a situation, at least I can't, where somebody would be held without being presented for more than three or four days, certainly seven Why do you say the rule is three days? What, what rule is that? The, because right now, uh, if you look at Edwards being the next day, Minnick and Roberson being three days, that, that is the, the only cases from this Court which says when the Edward presumption goes. So we don't have whether — what re respondents' rule would do is, in our view, extend it right now from the three-day limit now, there, there's many have suggested that's in perpetuity. Yeah, but you're, but you're, you're, you're not arguing for a seven-day limit no matter what, even if he's held in jail, are you? If he's held in jail on his own case, see, the most difficult scenario, in our view, is one that we don't think the Court needs to reach here, which is actually the Green case from the District of Columbia, where he's held on his own case in a pretrial detention right. scenario, because then he does have different incentives to cooperate or not cooperate with the police, and then you, the question would be, well, does that would, — would it end — is the break of custody there at conviction or at sentencing, and we could quibble about that. We don't need to get to that in this case. But if he's held in jail on another case, that's where he lives. He's there for 10, 15, 20 years, and there's the, he's brought in away from the life that he's accustomed to and put there with different officers in a metal room. Suppose it's the same officer. Does, you, you said in your brief and just now it was a different officer. Yeah. It, suppose it were the same officer. Well, I actually think, uh, for, for with, with, in this case, with Detective Blankenship and Detective Hoover, the Court should assume it's one and the same. In fact, Roberson s said just that, that within the same department. But, what, but it is instructive in this sense. Uh, if, in respondents, uh, if respondents' rule were to be adopted, there is no way that one police department can know what happened in front of another police department, in front of another police department, while that person... Well, you could limit it to the same... Police department, the same investigation, so you're not covering the waterfront of every interrogation about any crime, any place. Except for right now, we live in a world of Roberson where we do. So, in other words, if he, if, if a defendant invokes uh, in California for a shoplifting case and then is is transported to Iowa and then to Maryland, the, the Maryland authorities have no idea whether he invoked in one of the other two. What's worse is right now, since we don't have a break in custody rule, this defendant, Schatzer himself, could have invoked counsel 20, 25 years ago in some other state. We have no way of knowing that. The hypothetical you're positing is an investigation about unrelated crimes. We're talking about, and I think it's what Justice Ginsburg was pointing to, it was an invocation on this crime, on this criminal activity, not one in another state or in another police department. And so that's a substantially different question. It, it is. Um, 
though he's not being held on, on that crime. He's being held on a completely unrelated sexual abuse case. I mean, it's, it's related in the sense of the same crime, but it's a different case. So I thought Roberson told us it's not a different question, but it's the same question. Roberson did not draw a distinction between what crime he was being questioned on the second time. That, that's exactly right. And, and, the, and that which creates the problem that if a defendant — if we don't have a break-in-custody rule, a defendant who invokes anywhere at any time is forever immune from being questioned by the police, regardless of what would be a sort of a wholly irrational view of, of an absurd result, which I think is where we live right now. And, and it becomes obviously greater in a world when we have DNA. Obviously, there was no DNA in 1981. But with these cold cases coming back 15, 20, well, 25 years later. Well, I wonder if you're right about that permanent. Supposing the prison had a rule that the, the inmate does not have to see prison, uh, visitors, and they say there's somebody here who wants to talk to you, he said, I don't want to talk to him. And if he refused to talk, then if he did talk, it would be voluntary rather than the situation you described. Do you make myself clear? Yes, Your Honor, and, and I don't know sort of what the protocol of each of the, the prisons would be, but I would think that if a, a prisoner did not want to speak with the officers that came to see him about a, a crime, the, the prisoner would be able to say so and has. And this defendant has, has actually been able to invoke that himself. What's the shortest time period that any circuit court has found a break in custody in a similar situation? A break in custody then a re- Between the invocation of counsel and a re-questioning. You said a number of circuit courts have recognized this break in custody theory. Actually, all, eight uh, federal circuits, I don't know what the, the shortest is, but there are cases that are weeks rather than years uh, that they have. have. Which are days? What's that? Any are days? Uh, not that I'm aware of, Your Honor. And, and with that I will reserve. If there's no further question, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Heitens. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court has repeatedly made clear that Edwards versus Arizona is a prophylactic rule designed to implement the protections of Miranda versus Arizona, and it does so by operating as an anti-badgering rule. On the facts of this case, I don't think there's any colorable argument that Mr. Schatzer was badgered into waiving his Sixth Amendment rights. I know that you're going to go into the question of how we shape a rule. And I'd like you, and perhaps on rebuttal, uh, your other counsel, to comment on the following. I don't see, uh, as Justice Kennedy had a problem, so do I have a problem with anything that just says break in custody. And taking time seems fairly arbitrary. Suppose you could you try to shape a rule on the civil situation, the codes of ethics, where you're not supposed to talk to a client who has represented by a lawyer. That's where my mind is going. And the best I could do at the moment is you would say, when due to a breach in custody and the passage of time, the questioner did not and would not reasonably believe that the suspect was looking for or was represented by counsel. What I've tried to do is take the purpose of the civil rule, the ordinary ethical rule, and then use it to shape a standard. So I'd appreciate any comments on that thought. Justice Breyer, I think there's a a few problems with that approach. First of all, 
this case is not about the Sixth Amendment right to the assistance of counsel. It's about the Fifth Amendment right against compulsory self-incrimination. And this Court has said several times that rules of legal ethics are not relevant to the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination rule. It said that in the Burbine case, for example. That is the case where, although the questioner knew that the suspect had an attorney who was trying to reach him, the Court said that's not a Fifth Amendment self-incrimination problem, because we have to look at things from the perspective of the suspect. The question is whether the suspect Quite a lot of what I read was about the problems of counsel. So counsel has nothing to do with this, nothing at all. No, counsel has something to do with it, but the Court has made clear, going back to Miranda, that when we're talking about the Fifth Amendment right to counsel, the only reason that counsel matters is to help to make sure that right. the if, if, are we interested in counsel or not? If we are interested in whether he's represented by counsel, and Miranda covers both, then I would repeat my question. We're not, in not interested in representation by counsel. In the I would withdraw my question, and you don't have to answer it. We are, in the Fifth Amendment context, we're interested in counsel only as a derivative of his right not to be forced to incriminate himself. It's a, it is in this context a purely derivative right, and we need to look at it from his perspective. I, I think the reason that this case matters in an intensely practical way is there are approximately a million and a half prison inmates in this country right now, many of whom are serving extremely long sentences. Well, could we say that in, in the situation where there is a change from pretrial status to post-conviction status, the Edwards rule is no longer an irrebuttable presumption, but it's simply a rebuttable presumption, and that there — that the rule would not apply if the prosecution could show that under the circumstances, the reason for the rule, the, the concern about law enforcement badgering was not present. But that would certainly be open to the Court to say that, Justice Alito. Ultimately, this is a, a second-order — Would it be a good idea to say that? I don't think it would be I a thought idea. we liked clear lines in this. I mean, the, the police won't know what to do. And, and, Justice Scalia, that's precisely why we think the break-in-custody exception, but though carrying, it at least — carrying that analysis one step further, if you're just talking about people who are inmates pursuant to prior conviction, why wouldn't the better rule be that if the inmate is given the opportunity to say, no, I don't want a visitor today, and then if he accepts the visitor, you'd say he's no longer in custody. But if he says, I don't want to, then he, then he is in custody, then you'd, you preserve the presumption. Well, Justice Stevens, I suspect that's what the police would do if you ruled against the State in this case. But I think the reason that you, that you shouldn't do that is you have to ask yourself, what is the benefit that such a rule is trying to accomplish? The Court has made clear, again — Well, that — such a rule would accomplish the benefit when he really wants to — willing to talk, he'd say, I'd be glad to talk to the officer. Well, Justice Stevens — If he doesn't want to, he could just say no. Justice Stevens, if he didn't want to talk to the officer, there was nothing to prevent him from invoking his Fifth Amendment right to counsel. But it's a little different when the man first comes and says, do you, will you talk to the officer? He can very clearly say no. But if he's in the room with two or three people around in a different setting, then he's still in custody. He, he is in custody, Justice Stevens, but the premise of Miranda is that a person who's given the Miranda warnings can choose to decide whether to talk or not to talk. That's it's the, the change. You started to tell us why this case was important. Would you, would you finish that? You said Certainly. Were the reason this case is important, Justice Scalia, is that because under the Maryland Court of Appeals decision, 
no police officer, no corrections official can approach any prisoner without first attempting to determine if at some point to someone at some place during a period of continuous incarceration he has ever invoked his Fifth Amendment right to help. That's not true, because my hypothetical, if you told him you don't have to talk to the officer and you could produce, they, they could question every, everybody in jail all over the country. They, well, they can't approach him for questioning. They I, can't force him to attend the questioning. But if they give him an opportunity to say, I'm, I'm a a prisoner, I just want to stay in the prison population, not go to an interrogation room. And if he's willing to go, you, you could question him. You do not have the example of no possibility. Justice Stevens, the problem in that situation, again, though, is that ultimately the only basis for applying this presumption at all is if it's appropriate to apply an irrebuttable presumption that even though we gave him the Miranda warnings and even though he said, I'm happy to talk to you, we should presume that when he said that, that wasn't true. I, I thought that you couldn't approach him. I thought that once he's invoked his right to counsel, you can't approach him and say, would you like to talk now? Right? Isn't that, isn't that the rule? Well, under Rhode Island versus Innis, you're entitled to, to update him on the status of the interrogate, but you're not entitled to resume custodial interrogation unless there's been a break in custody or something has terminated Edwards. Well, if, if the incarceration is a continuation of custodial uh, uh, custody, to be redundant, uh, if, if it is a continuation of the custody, then why wouldn't asking him whether he would like to see visitors who want to ask him about a particular crime, why wouldn't that be a violation of Edwards? I, I think defendants may well argue that it was. I'm sure they would. Um, and, and so so, so the, the, the scheme that Justice uh, Stevens proposes uh, wouldn't work. You, you'd be violating Edwards when you asked him if he wanted to, to see in, in, interrogators. I think there would be a risk of that happening. I think the other reason is, again, this is a second-order prophylactic rule that the Court has adopted solely in order to prevent people from being coerced, coerced into incriminating themselves when they don't want to. You, you join uh, the counsel for the State in just not wanting to argue for a time rule, which seems to me the only thing that would work. Uh, we, we, we think the break-in-custody approach is the more appropriate one that will lead to fewer line-drawing problems. It is certainly open to That's the That's become apparent, and I'm indicating that I think the time rule might have some benefits. Well, we certainly don't oppose the Court adopting a time rule in the event that it rejects our primary submission. In United States versus Green, the government argued for a raw passage of time approach, and we think ultimately this is the Court's rule. It's a second-order prophylactic rule that's designed to implement the Fifth Amendment, and it would certainly be open to the Court if it thought necessary to oppose But you don't give us any, any suggestions. As, and, you know, the, the State opens the bidding with seven days. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, the Speedy Trial Act with many exceptions, requires that you go to trial within 70 days. Would that be a benchmark? Well, I think as a practical matter, though, there are so many, as, as you point out, Justice Kennedy, there are so many exceptions to that. We think that would be far longer than would be necessary or appropriate under the circumstances. In I mean, this, In this case, it's two years and seven months. Why should the Court take that, a period of that length and say, well, we're going to now rule for all future cases. It should be, say, six months. Well, I, I think that is another potential defect in, in adopting a pure passage of time approach, though I think this case is particularly easy. And I think the fact that the Maryland Court of Appeals in this case concluded that two years and seven months is covered by an anti-badgering rule just shows at some point how far this has departed 
from the original purposes of Edwards in the first place. So I, I, I do think, I mean, the Court could simply say this case is too long, though at that point the Court isn't providing a great deal of guidance to the lower courts that have to deal with these problems on a day-to-day basis. Or to the police who have to decide whether they can interrogate or not. Absolutely. It would also not provide very much guidance to the police to just say two years and seven months is too long. Um, and that's, again, why we think an approach that is either uh, is either tethered to the break in custody, which, as I think I've said, we think better maps onto the concerns that motivated Edwards. Let me address for a moment the catch and release situation. I, I don't want to interrupt that, but um, there were two aspects to Edwards. One was the coercion, but the other was the respect for the advisement of counsel. And so the test that you're proposing only addresses the coercion prong of it, not the respect for the invocation of counsel. The, the Court has mentioned respecting the choice. I think with respect, ultimately, though, that can't be the basis for the Edwards rule. The Court has made clear repeatedly that the Fifth Amendment prohibits only compelling someone to be a witness against himself. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Davis. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, creating exceptions to the rule of Edwards means a clear rule is lost. It introduces uncertainty into the determinations of what constitutes custody and what length of time might be adequate to excuse the protection. This is an area where it's very difficult to draw lines, at least I find it difficult to draw lines. So let me start you out with an extreme hypothetical. And I'd like you to tell me whether you think the Edwards rule reaches this far. And if it doesn't, then I'd like you to tell me why it doesn't. What limitations, if any, on the rule you would be willing to defend as consistent with the rationale for the rule. Someone is taken into custody in Maryland in 1999 and questioned for joyriding, released from custody, and then in 2009 is taken into custody and questioned for murder in Montana. Uh, now, at the time of the first questioning, the, the suspect invokes the uh, Fifth Amendment right to counsel. Now, does the Edwards rule apply to the second interrogation? Yes, it does, Justice Alito. The Edwards rule provides two ending points as it stands right now. And you don't think that's a ridiculous application of the rule? First of all, how are the authorities in Montana possibly going to know whether this person was uh, interrogated previously uh, on a crime for which the person was never uh, convicted in Maryland and w- that in- invoked the, uh, the right not to be questioned without, without an attorney? And you think there's badgering in that situation? Yes, Justice Alito, because badgering in this context has become a term of art. It is used in quotation marks in the Montejo opinion, and it doesn't mean badgering. It means an attempt by. You ought to get another term for it then. Why? why, why? I, I think questioning. <laughs> I think it means returning, in an attempt to get a suspect to change his or her mind, and in this case, the suspect said when first questioned, "There was I no attempt in this hypothetical to get him to change his mind. They didn't know he had made up his mind." Well, it, uh, first of all, I didn't answer the question properly, but the, um, the, the police, I think, can run a rap sheet and find out from prior arrests if a person has been taken into custody. And that would alert a police officer that that person may have invoked their right, and they should do more to find out. And second, so, all right, they run the rap sheet and they find out 
If they do, the person was arrested 10 years earlier in Maryland, and then what? They, they try to find the, the detective that questioned the, uh, the suspect in 1999 in Maryland, and they find out that uh, the detective is retired and is now, you know, fishing down in the Florida Keys. They have to track this person down and say, now, do you recall whether the person — that's the rule you're arguing for? Well, the police officers should attempt to do so, but I understand that under well, just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, interrupt you there, and I'll let you get back to the answer. They should attempt to do so. The rule here does not allow the police to approach that person, a murder suspect, and you're saying he cannot even be approached to see if he would waive his rights 10 years later because he was uh, invoked the right in connection with the uh, joyriding. Yes. Because okay, if okay. they have invoked the right, then the second approach means an attempt to, to persuade the person to change their mind about having counsel. And where they haven't done so in the interim, that is, amounts to well, the Let me change my hypothetical again, the same joyriding questioning. And then 40 years later, uh, after the person has uh, gotten a law degree and uh, become an entrepreneur and made — $20 million taken into custody and questioned by the federal authorities for uh, stock fraud. Forever, uh, you know, this, this right that was invoked back in adolescence continues forever? It should. But let's look at this case, Your Honor, because here this suspect was questioned about the same allegations by detectives from the same police department and while he was in custody continuously. And under those circumstances, Edwards and the rationale of Edwards should apply well, Just strongly. in case, just in case, we don't put — we want to put a time limit on it, which I know you don't want us to do. I'm now thinking, and I'd like your comment if you want, of a combination of what Justice Alito said and what I said. That is, there are two parts to the, the Edwards thing. One is the uh, lawyer part, and the other is the incriminating self part. Now, the lawyer part would be handled by shaping a rule based on the rules of ethics, along the lines I suggested. And that would give you a time. And then the, the Miranda part could be handled by saying, but the suspect retains the right to show that this questioning is badgering without the question marks. In other words, what they're really up to is to try to get him to change his mind. Now, would that work? I, I believe the Court could adopt a type of rebuttable presumption under those circumstances, but it shows the difficulty that courts would have, and police officers, too, in measuring degrees, degrees of coercion or de degrees of custody. I think the foregoing discussion has illustrated that uh, prisoners maybe under different types of coercion in their prison Could environment. Could I ask something? Just what does that have to do with the may. hypothetical Justice Alito gave you, which is the person's not in custody? Right. He's well, arrested for joy riding. He's let go. And you're saying that for 20, 40 years, he's now immunized from being reapproached by the police uh, under the Edwards rule. Yes. So you're, you're advocating that no break in custody ever stops the Edwards clock. Right. The problems with the break in custody are a break will exist in almost every case. And even in Edwards, there was a oh, change in custody between the police to a state or county jail. So there's a change in a break in custody right there. The prisoner was removed from the police department and taken to the county jail. It was one day. He said he wanted the, yes. the, the, to remain silent in the evening, and at 9 o'clock the next morning, they were back. 
But a, re- a release from custody does not signal that a person who has asked for counsel has changed but his or now, her mind. But you're now accepting your adversary's point that somehow a, a change from a locked room in a prison to a different locked room is a release from custody. No, I don't. If we don't, if we don't accept that proposition, isn't there a clear break when someone's let to go home? When someone's released and permitted to go home? There's more of a break, Justice Sotomayor, but it doesn't say anything about that person's choice to proceed with counsel. And if counsel is not provided, then the attorney is excluded from the adversary system of May criminal I justice. May I ask you about a, a different approach? We're dealing in, in this case with somebody who was constantly in custody, but for a different reason than during the pretrial situation. Yes. He's in the general prison po- population. What, what would be wrong with the rule that said a person in that situation should be advised that somebody wants to question him, and he has a right to say, I do or do not want to talk to the visitor? And if he's willing to talk to the visitor, then you, you have to give him uh, new Miranda warnings and you start from scratch. But have the, have the focus on whether he's in custody at the time of the questioning and say that a, an, inability, an inability to refuse to go to the interrogation room would be not treated as custody. You'd be treated as in the uh, general prison population. What would be well, wrong with such a rule? I don't think anything's wrong, and I don't think a new rule is needed to cover that situation because it is conceivable that uh, a person, even in a prison environment, if they have control, say, if they were to telephone out or to be free to refuse visitors, might not be considered in custody. But in this case, Michael Schatzer lived in a prison environment. He was not but, free but to shut his door. the record doesn't tell us whether around. he was given an opportunity to say, I don't want any visitors today. No, it does not. But uh, I think the State has the burden to show the circumstances. <laughs> well, question who has the burden of showing he's in custody or he's free to leave. If he has the burden, he didn't carry the burden in this case. Well, the record does show that he lived in a maximum security Correct. prison and does not he show that he was he free to refuse. He still live in a maximum security prison and say, I don't want any visitors. We don't know that he could have refused I mean, under the record. As far as the record shows. Right. We don't know that. But, Justice Stevens. Do, do, do we have to ask him, you know, what visitors? I mean, is that the question? Well, do you want to have any visitors today? This shows he says, the I don't know. Is it my mother? <laughs> or, 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 or do you ask him, are you willing to speak to investigators about a crime? And, and he said, what crime? I mean, how specific does, does the request for uh, permission to have visitors have to be well, for this rule this, to cut in? This uh, discussion shows the problems with allowing such a determination in the first place. Our position is the definition of custody for, for Miranda purposes must be the same for Edwards' purposes. For a prisoner lives within confined space under constant surveillance and with no freedoms and limited expectation of privacy. So then I don't understand why your answer to Justice Alito's hypothetical was what it was, because that person obviously was not in custody. It's uh, — all I'm saying is that if we were to adopt the language that this Court uh, in Montejo Utilized. If a person is in control, if a person is not in custody, they are in control and can shut the door or walk away. If that's an operable definition, then it, it did not apply in this case because Michael Schatzer did not have such freedom. Uh, well, if you're going to use the, the Edwards, which I think is a good idea, as a council part, which I think is a good starting place, you and every other member of the bar deals with this problem every day of the week. 
at, not every day of the week, but very often. You know somebody's represented uh, in a case, and you know you're supposed to talk to the lawyer. But eventually time passes, and then you're probably free to talk to him because the whole thing's gone away. Now, that's a pretty vague rule. You could make it more specific. But the, the bar has lived with that kind of situation, I guess, for years. Well, so why can't we hear? We, we, I think we should. The police officers have lived with the Edwards decision, which says you No, no, that's not what I mean. I mean that the obligation to deal with counsel you don't have after enough time passes that it's no longer reasonable to think that that individual either has or wants counsel. Well, in this case, there's no reason to think that this suspect changed his mind. When first given his grant Excuse me. What, what is the ethical rule about counsel? I thought if, if, if there's counsel in a particular case and you want to approach the client about that case, you can't do it without going to counsel. I think so. But if there's an entirely different case, there's totally different litigation. You can't approach the fellow without going back to the counsel whom he hired for a different case. I don't think that's the ethical rule, but that's the effect of Edwards. Even if it's a different crime, you have to go back to the counsel whom he hired for a, for a different prosecution. That bears no relationship to the ethical rules of, of counsel. Well, this Court could adopt a rule that the Edwards protection, uh, an alternative that was raised in the United States versus Green, that the Edwards uh, protection extends to the same case for which the, the police initially questioned the suspect and for which he asked for counsel. That's one alternative, and I submit that would make be more difference? clear than Does it make a difference? If we, we can limit it to the same case. But here, the reason that the police came back is that they had additional evidence, and so they wanted to ask him, confront him with the new evidence. It's not the same situation that it was when he was initially questioned. Well, I think from the suspect's point of view, it is the same situation. Uh, he was in the same position facing the police in 2003 as he was in 2006, in that he was accused of committing crime, and in the interim, he had no access to counsel. And I think that this is significant in this case, because it's not clear that even if he had been able to call out of the prison, he would have had representation, because the public defender's office was under no constitutional or statutory duty to provide counsel for a person who's not presently being questioned and who has not yet been charged. What if, what if we limited Edwards to the same crime? That would, that would really make it much easier for the police I agree. To, to know whether this person, uh, in fact, invoked uh, the right to counsel. It would be easier, yes. And it would apply to this case because it was the same crime. Would that we would require us to overrule Robertson? Well, it, it does present some tensions with Roberson. However, this case, is, since it's limited to the same crime, uh, doesn't extend as far as Roberson does. And I would like to answer Justice Stevens's question. In this case, the suspect was told uh, he was advised of his rights and said, I have the right to talk to a lawyer and have him present with me while I'm being questioned. If I cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be appointed to resent me represent me before any questioning if I wish. Those rights were never fulfilled in the two years and seven months that passed. Well, but the Miranda rights do not require the police to provide counsel. They have to mean you have to stop questioning yes, until the person has to. the right to counsel. And the one thing this person knew from the prior 
in uh, Miranda situation was 2003. Yes. Is that if he said, I don't want to talk without counsel, the one thing he knew is the police would stop questioning because that's what they did. But that's not the same, Chief Justice Roberts, as having counsel present during questioning. If, well, Miranda, if Miranda doesn't advice says that you have a right to have a counsel present during questioning, and all that advice means after time is we'll stop questioning you, then the right has been diminished over time. Why is there a greater risk of badgering when the questioning is about a different offense? I think the risk is the same. The risk — I thought you just said we could — you were suggesting as an alternative that — uh, that Edwards be limited to situations where the question well, that's is about possible. the same it's, offense. Well, the rationale that was extended in, in the Green um, case is that if questioning is about a different time, the perception from the suspect's point of view that the police are badgering him would be less. And this isn't fanciful. We just were asked to take a case involving uh, this, a statute of limitations issue for a murder that was committed like 30 years ago. Suppose somebody is questioned by state authorities for uh, a murder and uh, taken into custody, then released, and then 30 years later uh, taken into custody by federal uh, authorities and questioned for a civil rights violation based on the same underlying transaction. You would say the Edwards rule applies in that situation? Yes, it does. Now, a police officer in that situation really has three alternatives. One, they could wait until counsel is present to be sure of obtaining a statement admissible in the state's case in chief. Number two, they could take a chance, uh, as happened in this case, where Detective Hoover never opened the case file and didn't know that uh, the suspect had ever invoked his rights, take a statement anyway and run the risk that it, it may have to be excluded. Well, or you're, three, you're being very unrealistic. Have you ever known defense counsel who says, oh, yes, uh, do, do submit to the interrogation? I mean, you know, once they're lawyered up, they're not going to talk. You know that. Yes, I know that. But that it, this court in Miranda was concerned with the limits that society must impose consistent with the Constitution in prosecuting crimes. And I think Edwards strikes the balance between the individual uh, faced in captivity, uh, questioned by interrogators, and the state. Well, you say in captivity, but you think the rule applies whether they're in captivity or not. In, in Justice Alito's hypothetical, the person was free for 40 years. So but captivity is not a limitation on your the, your proposed rule. Well, the person is going to be in custody in each Edwards scenario at the time they're questioned. So the question is the intervening time period. Well, you agree and what I'm that saying if is he's questioned, he's not in custody when he's being questioned. If you stop him on the street or he's in his living room, they can question him there. Yes, because Edwards only applies to custodial interrogation. And under these circumstances, Edwards strikes a balance in a familiar and predictable way. The facts of these case, this case does not, does not uh, Counsel, permit don't. an exception. We don't have a case, none of the cases in this area where we've applied Edwards has dealt with the situation with where a prisoner has been released from custody in any sense of that word, i.e. sent home. In all of the three situations that I'm aware of in which the Edwards rule has applied, the prisoner has stayed in jail, some form of jail, correct? Yes, yeah, some form of jail. But there is, a, you know, Chief Justice Roberts referred to the, uh, the difference between the, the uh, police station and a prison. There are also pretrial detention centers, and there's a, a range of, of custodial scenarios that the police officers might encounter. And, and 
advancing a, an exception to the rule for a break in custody presents practical problems. Well, I well, suppose if they're in a pretrial detention center, they know they're still being looked at for the crime as to which they've invoked their Miranda warnings. Yes. So you wouldn't call that, and I don't understand the other side to argue, that that is, there's a break in custody there. But a transfer within, well, if it doesn't, then, then it doesn't, but there should not be a break there. Otherwise, there would have been a break in Edwards and in many No, no, no. I'm, I agree with you. There shouldn't be a break there. But here the situation is quite different. Uh, uh, there is a break between jail for questioning and prison for 15 years or whatever your sentence is. But from the suspect's point of view, the only thing that changed is the state agents who temporarily held him in a room for questioning. He was still yes, under it, custody. It, wouldn't it make sense to treat the, ch- the change from a to pretrial detention to a general prison population as by itself a, a no longer custody, provided he is told that he doesn't have to talk to people who want to pay him a visit. He can say, they could have a rule say that the prisoner does not have to talk to everybody who comes, comes around. And then you could treat that as the functional equivalent of not being in custody. Wouldn't that be a sensible rule? It's, it's one possibility, but I don't think it's a workable rule. The circumstances of custody within an institution can change dramatically. They can, but if you as say as a condition to, to questioning, he just has to know that he doesn't have to see visitors he doesn't want to see, which doesn't seem to be a very hard rule to administer. It doesn't, Justice Stevens, but I think the problem is it's a hard rule for police officers to know. If they go to an institution to question someone, how do they know if that rule is applicable to that prison? They may doesn't be, it, doesn't the beginning of the Miranda warning tell him that he doesn't have to? And he shows up, and they, that's the end of it. I, th- I still think it presents difficulties. Could I have a clarification I, of the facts for a moment? In 2003, he was in one state facility a sentenced prisoner, Correct. Correct. And he was just moved from one state prison to another. He wasn't in pretrial detention in either of these time frames, correct? That's correct. We're just talking about a change in facility, not in status. Exactly. And, Justice Sotomayor, I wanted to uh, answer your question about the time period where the circuit courts have sanctioned a break in custody. One uh, is cited in the respondent's brief at page 27 is Holman versus Chemna, and a one-day break uh, was was authorized in that case. That's a very short time period. What were the circumstances? I don't. Well, that was a case. case that's not entirely um, analogous, but it's close. Where the the question was whether a statement was tainted um, by an Edwards violation. It also involved the Sixth Amendment, I believe. So um, was the prisoner in a prison the entire 24 hours, or or was the individual released home? That's I what think it was a release home, if I recall correctly. I'd have to double check, but there was a one day period that the court recognized. Uh, do I misunderstand Miranda warnings? Isn't he told at the very outset of the Miranda warning that he doesn't have to talk if he doesn't want to talk? Is, is that any less strong than, than, than asking him whether he wants to receive visitors in general or, in particular, a visitor who wants to ask him about a particular crime? I mean, he's, he's told that with a Miranda warning, which he's given the second time. If you don't want to talk, you don't have to. If you want a lawyer to be present, you're entitled to a lawyer, or, and, and, or else we terminate. I don't know why that isn't enough. 
It isn't enough, uh, Justice Scalia, because, and I think this came out of uh, Arizona versus Roberson, merely repeating advice when the right to counsel has not been fulfilled is not enough because the person over time might lose hope of ever seeing an attorney. And certainly a prisoner has less means than someone on the street to hire an attorney. He doesn't care whether he gets an attorney so long as he doesn't have to talk to the investigators. That's the issue, whether he must talk to these investigators. And he's told right up front, you don't have to do it. And if if you want an attorney for it, we'll get you an attorney. Otherwise, we, we will terminate the interview. But if he has asked for an attorney in the past and over two years and seven months has never seen the right fulfilled, I think that, that the pressure that's, to cooperate with interrogators has increased. That's a, that's, isn't that a Sixth Amendment question? That's not a Miranda question, mm-hmm. if he has not been provided a lawyer. Well, in this case, Chief Justice Roberts, the Sixth Amendment never attached because this right. suspect had never been charged. Right. And it's the Fifth Amendment we're worried about, and that is directed to coercion, and yes. that is addressed if you stop questioning him. You don't even start questioning him. He says, look, I don't want to talk without a lawyer. But I think prisoners — Talking stopped, as it did the, very, the first time he was approached. It did, but for, for a prisoner in custody questioned about the same offense, the coercive pressures that were present in Miranda are present for him as well. And that's why we think that the core holding, the core rationale of Edwards applies very strongly in this case. Why wouldn't he think — I invoked my right to remain silent without a lawyer two years and seven months ago. I'll do it again. They'll have to stop questioning. Why wouldn't that be the most likely mindset of the defendant? He knew that it worked the first time. Why should it not work the second time? I think it's possible, but in this case, where the right to counsel went unfulfilled for that period of time, a person might lose hope that that advice that he asked for help so, so if would he ever says, be fulfilled. I'm sorry. Are you, Go ahead. you don't answer? Uh, so if he said, instead of, I want to talk to a lawyer, if he said, I want to remain silent, your, your case comes out differently? He doesn't say anything no. about a lawyer. He says, look, I don't want to talk to you. I think it would come out the same way. Well, and, and well, but all your arguments about he hasn't been provided a lawyer, uh, there's an ethical obligation to provide a lawyer, those, those are off the table. Well, what's different is, in this Court, I think, made it clear in Michigan versus Mosley, asking for help from an attorney is materially different than saying, I choose to remain silent. And the reason is a person who invokes the right to silence while questioned in custody is in control and chooses to stop the questioning. Whereas he doesn't ask for an attorney. He just says, I don't want to talk without an attorney. That's what he says. He doesn't demand an attorney. He says, I don't want to talk without an attorney. I and the investigators say, okay, in that case, we won't talk to you. Well, and they treated it as a clear invocation of the right to counsel by documenting it in two places and, and putting that in the case file. The right it to is- counsel in the course of interrogation. Yes, I, I think what he said was, I won't speak to you without an attorney, is, is the same as asking for an attorney. I can, think of, um, I can think of at least one situation in which the Court has held that there's a time limit in which something has to be done in order to comply with the constitutional requirement. If we were to choose a time period here, what would, what would you propose? Oh, anything over two years and seven months would be fine with the response. <laughs> but it still be, doesn't solve the problem. What would be a, what would be a, what would be a, ser- 
Uh, what would be a serious answer to that question? <laughs> we, we've argued that Edwards continues to the end. And, and the reason all it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing, Justice Alito, because, because this Court has already said in Edwards, we, we will allow the police to come back if the suspect changes his or her mind or if the attorney is present. And those two, those two alternatives are available every day and they're easy for the police to ascertain. Your and adversary says that they, he can't change his mind. It has to be a spontaneous you know, somehow they have to be in a room together that wasn't planned, and he has to come up and say, I'm confessing out of the kindness of my heart. The police can't even approach him, according to you, once he's invoked counsel. Unless to ask him whether he wants to change his mind. That's, that's right. That's that, the point. That is the badgering. That is the specter of coercion that is inconsistent with the constitutional right related to Miranda to have counsel present. And that is... The reason why so there is no termination point, really? It's not confined to time, Justice Sotomayor, but the termination point is, especially for a prisoner, uh, it's easy for a prisoner to contact the police. Just <clears throat> tell the jail guard that you'd like to talk to the police about that investigation. I'm, they'll make arrangements quickly for that to happen, I'm, I'm quite sure. Or counsel could be present and questioning may proceed in that instance. And those are the reasons I would ask this Court to affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals of Maryland. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Davis. General Gansler, you have two minutes remaining. In response to Justice Breyer's question, um, the ethics rules do not apply to the police, only to lawyers. And I think Justice Scalia hit it right, exactly right, where this, the, the, he's actually, in this case, he's not represented at all. He's in, a, in custody because his case has been concluded. My thought is, sentence. can you use the rule for lawyers, which has worked, to help shape rule that would work here. Yes, and I'll get to that in one second. Um, and I agree, and that's exactly right. The uh, visitors in jail scenario that Justice Stevens brought up, the defendant could say, I told them I don't want to talk to any visitors, no matter what, I want to talk to any visitors. They dragged me up there, made me go into this room and answer questions. Then, you have, while Edwards, in our view, would have already been terminated, you have still the argument that my, my Miranda warnings were not waived voluntarily and, and, and freely, and moreover, I was denied due process. In terms of the time limits of the cases, in the state of Maine, uh, State v. Alley was uh, six hours, and the following day, Duncan's versus State Penalty, 11th Circuit, was the next day following breaking and testing. Now, those cases, the guy basically went home in those scenarios. Um, the confusion seems to be in a lot of the questions regarding what is custody. We, we will not — we don't argue — we're talking about interrogational police custody, which is different than being in jail, lying on your cot, watching cable television. We, this is in, — in our scenario, the three days that now exist, was no one questions in the Roberson, Minnick, and Edwards case, those three days were pre-trial police custody situations. There is but no they, break in custody but, but there was no difference in those cases, as I understand, that each of the prisoners was in a particular room being questioned and then he was released into a more general room later. My understanding was my understanding of those cases, they were in the sort of the box, as we call it, and then they were put back into a holding cell, a cell, and then brought back to the box. Very What's different. the difference between that and a holding cell, a maintenance room, and being put back into general prison to 
go sleep. The latter case, the latter scenario is, is very different because that's where they live. That's their daily routine. Through no fault of the state, they're visual offenders. They live in the general population of a jail. In this case, it was medium security, not maximum security. And they were put, there, there were people around. They have recess, they have television, they have cafeteria and so forth. Finally, going to Justice Alito's question uh, regarding the time limit, where you do it. This Court has in uh, County of Riverside obviously used 48 hours for presentment as the time. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.